when you're growing a business and starting a business, do things that aren't scalable okay. because you build that loyalty with those people you do it and that will pay dividends that will help you scale down the road. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt Rouse and Jeremy Marcotte. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. I'm your host, Jeremy Marcotte, and I'm here with Matt Rouse. Say hi, Matt. Hi, Jeremy. <laughs> it's weird. You just say hi usually. All right. Anyway, but today and this week, we have David Gadlin from Study of Suites. Hi, David. Hello. Do you want to be called David or Dave? Whatever works for you. All right. So I'm going to call you Dave because it's fun. So, Dave, who are you? What do you do? Uh, I'm the owner of Dave's Meat and Nuts, which is beef jerky, smoked steak strips, and roasted candied nuts. Focused mostly on direct-to-consumer, so online sales, mm -hmm. ordering through my website. And then we do a lot of wholesale orders. We do a bunch of private labels. So, you know, you want to have your own brand of digital marketing masters, butter toffee almonds. We design a label or a package together, put my product in it, and ship you whatever you want. Wow. We may um, want that. I Yeah. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've got a couple of ideas that aren't trademarked, and I haven't seen them for sale. Yeah. The classic D's Nuts. I you think know. that is probably a trademark. I looked. I didn't see a trademark. Yeah, I don't know right. if you're, it's trademarkable, right? So I think it's too vague. So when I started the business, I was thinking of names and, you know, for a beef jerky and nut company and all sorts of things from the something you'd see on the supermarket, just a one word, right? Crave, great name for food brand mm -hmm. and, you know, hundreds of other brands like that. And, you know, finding a right URL was a little tricky to it. And so, you know, there's plenty of puns within Dave's Meat and Nuts. And I was leaning, I was talking to a good friend of mine saying, every time I lean towards like Dave's Meat or Dave's Nuts, you know, the connotations and the jokes are funny, but I don't know how far that'll go or and who that'll piss off. And he's like, yeah, just go for it. Call it Dave's Meat and Nuts and just go big. And I did. And, you know, some regrets. It's fun. I like the name. But, you know, you also look in the food world, especially Dave's is a pretty. So you have Dave's Killer Bread, which is a big company that started mm -hmm. out here in Portland, is now a national brand. And Dave's, ins uh, I think it's Dave's, Dave's Insanity, Insanity Sauces is a really world or nationwide famous company for Dave's and Dave's Famous Cookies mm -hmm. and Dave's this and Dave's that. So there's some value to it. And, you know, there's also some hesitations of if it was the right choice, but you can have that in any business. And I think with any name. So you said when you started, you just said, go for it, you know, go big. Right. So how did you get your start? Was it, Hey, I've got an extra 20 grand in my pocket. I'm going to go open this store. Or did you start with something else? So I had, you know, enough money. I've been working in the restaurant business for my whole life. And then, uh, had enough money to begin the process. So to do 10 pound batches of test flavors of beef jerky and 10, 20 pound batches of different nuts and figure out how to tweak the recipes, which is something I'm good at from culinary school background and cooking for a while and the restaurant business my whole life. But to figure it out on a more commercial scale is a whole nother ball game, when, right. especially when somebody else is making those recipes for you. And then the initial product design and setting up the businesses. So before I ever started, I probably put, I don't know, somewhere between five and ten, fifteen thousand dollars into it slowly over a couple of years until I was really ready. And then I went to Kickstarter, which is a well-known crowdfunding platform. So you sort of go on there, put forth your idea and your project and 
give me $10 to help me fund this business. And in return, you're going to get a bag of beef jerky or whatever the case may be. Nice. So that was about a little over four years ago, I think. And yeah, when after tried to raise $8,000, which was enough to do about 25 pound batch of four different flavors of beef and about the same size of four different flavors of nuts. And then as well, get into packaging and getting, you know, bulk bags and bulk labels. And then anything extra was going to go into obviously, you know, making the extra product that would go in with all that extra money. We ended up doing about $15,000. We set up all sorts of tiers, most popular tiers, 25. Again, that go big mentality, I set up a $2,000 tier, make 200 bags or I don't remember the exact amount, 100 pounds of your own custom beef jerky flavor and your own custom label. I had somebody back it, shockingly enough, and then they canceled after the project was over, asked me to refund their money. They were doing a new business launch and they wanted to have it a promotional. And then all of a sudden, I think they realized that's probably not money well spent. So <laughs> we ended up refunding them. So then the result was really about 13000 Wow. It's still it, a successful Kickstarter campaign. And that's back when the Kickstarter and the crowdfunding kind of just started really getting rolling, right? Cause yeah, I see. It's definitely it wasn't the early days of Kickstarter. So there was a, a proven mythology to how to run a successful campaign. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean 100% of people that'll follow that mythology would be successful. Right. But Tim Ferriss did a very long, I think it was a blog post, author of 4-Hour Workweek and his whole handful of motivational half-truths with really, really good information or some really good ideas. But he did a big rundown about how to run a successful Kickstarter campaign. And then you Google how to run a successful Kickstarter campaign. And you read every other blog person that you never heard of. And you, from my perspective, understanding business and understanding my world, which is food and production, you sort of take the good and the bad from everything and right. throw it together. So when I launched, I was pretty confident I would make it. How much greater than that $8,000 goal, I had no idea. You kind of always have that 1%, like, could this be the next million dollar or $100,000 campaign, which are very, very rare, but had a reasonable but humble goal and we crushed it. So I couldn't be happier. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are like, I got an idea, so I'm going to throw it on Kickstarter and then I'm going to get a million dollars for nothing. Yeah. And, and yeah. I see a thousand of those projects go by every you the know, half-assed every idea. Year. For sure. Like, on the happens. same note, and one out of whatever that number is, a thousand, right. ten thousand, half-assed, terrible ideas, nonsense, whimsical right. BS, potato salad Learn is how the to example. make potato salad. Right. And, yeah. you know, raises millions of dollars and... Sometimes it goes to somebody that got lucky and sometimes they give it to charity and, you know. I definitely think there's a lot of merit in the idea of how to structure your video based on other ones that have been successful and how to do your write-up based on other ones that were successful and and successfully executing on those things. And, I mean, I've seen your old campaign and the video for it was funny and, you know, it talked about the product and it was kind of down to earth, but it had a little funny start to it because of the whole joke on the Dave's meat and nuts thing, right? It was mm-hmm. Dave's walking up some steps and there's there's a guy there and he's like, oh, Dave, I had your nuts in my mouth last night or something, right? It was funny <laughs> to get it kicked off, right? And, you know, we see that with some of your advertising and stuff on Facebook and Instagram where the more that something is shared, commented on, liked, like any engagement makes the ads get cheaper, And you get a lot of engagement from the name, right? For sure. People tag their friend Dave and they're like, hey, Dave, I saw your nuts on the internet. Ha, 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 you know, but. 
you know, so it works and, out in your advantage in that social situation, right? Absolutely, right. So there's the people that are your actual customers that are interested and are going to comment or share like, right. oh, I love this flavor, sounds amazing. But then you get all that extra social proof, which is really what it is, even though it's not, of likes and comments and all this stuff just off of the name that they may or may not buy, but right. they know it, Dave, or they think it's one of the ads is funny, or the GIF comments, or GIF comments, if you're right. one of those people. <laughs> GIF or GIF. Yeah, we won't go down the road. It's, <laughs> it's uh, GIF peanut butter. Right. If it's, if it's a GIF, then it's GIF peanut butter. So, but all those comments just adds validity and it adds an increased chance of somebody that may not have clicked on an ad. It's like, wait, 600 comments, a thousand likes, whatever it is. And they get engaged and there's X percent, whatever the number is, that right. that becomes a future customer or just another comment and a little more social proof. Right. And the platforms like Facebook and Instagram, pretty much anyone who has an algorithm, which is every social media site at this point. They're not really checking to see what the engagement is, right? Like they're only trying to see that it's not negative, right? Mm -hmm. And then they're also tracking other things. They're tracking conversions and clicks and all these things. But a share is a share to Facebook. They don't give a shit why you shared it. For right? sure. Just a yeah. share is a share. Right. Right. But anyway, let's oh, – we're kind of getting a little <laughs> off track again already. <laughs> so you, quickly, you, but you, you talked a little bit about – you glazed over it. You've been in the restaurant industry for forever, mm -hmm. right? And you said you went to culinary school. So how long and what got you into the culinary world? So I was terrible. I mean, you know, by any metric, I'm a relatively smart person. If I applied myself at school, I could have done average to good. Who knows? Maybe great. Probably not. But I was just a really lazy student. I grew up in like an upper middle class environment in a suburb of New York City in Staten Island. So there was a lot of I'm 13 years old, partying, being exposed to stuff that 18 or 20 year old college kids are being exposed to down the road in other parts of the country. So I went to graduated high school. I went to a private school because if I went to public school, historically from all my friends who were older than me that I was hanging out with, I would have dropped out because they were all dropping out. Mm. So my mother was like, that's not going to happen. Like maybe if you don't go to college, that might be your own decision, right. which she would have murdered me. Ultimately, I didn't go to college, but you know, not graduating from high school wasn't even a, an option right. right, in her mind. So went to a small private school and Went to a semester of college focusing on business. It was the only thing I could think of that made sense. I had no aspirations of doctor, lawyer, or anything right. specific. So I said, I'll go to business school. And it just wasn't for me. Like I was passing, but barely. I wasn't interested. I was doing the work, as most college people probably do. Mm -hmm. So I went back to where I was living and got a job in a pizzeria as a prep cook. And an Italian, you know, pasta, penny alla vodka, and chicken parmesan. Not Italian food, Italian-American food. Mm -hmm. With really amazing owners and what they were doing was super high quality and they took a lot of pride in it. And so I was talking to the owner's wife, though she was one of the owners, and she was like, well, why don't you go to culinary school? And I was like, hmm, that's, um, I never thought of it, right? Mm -hmm. Cooking for a living, never thought of it. Drove up to the Culinary Institute of America with uh, my best friend at the time and still my best friend. Almost ran out of gas, just made it. It was amazing in the middle of upstate New York. <laughs> and toured the campus, it was beautiful, Applied for student loans, I got it. And, you know, honestly, I didn't have any other, what at least in my perception was legitimate prospects, right? right? That was the only choice at that point. In hindsight, I probably, 
I don't know that I would recommend it. I would say just go get a job in a good restaurant, work 18 months, two years, go get a job at a better restaurant, right. do it again, do it again, do it again. You're not going to be $40,000 in debt and we're going to be at the same place Right, theoretically. more of a mentoring it's, kind yeah. of thing. Right My now. story, exactly. I went to culinary school at the Portland Art Institute, mm-hmm. came out $60,000 in debt. And when I started my first job cooking at Departure, he's like, you got the job because you went to culinary school. But honestly, if you were worth your salt, I would have hired you anyway, but you just wasted forty dollars to $60,000. Yeah. yeah. But the flip side is like any life decision, if you didn't do that, you probably wouldn't have gone to Departure, right? right? You would have maybe been a cook at Wendy's or... Red Lion was where I was at while I was going to culinary school. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? And there's nothing wrong with being a cook at Wendy's or working at Red Lion, but you don't... The decisions we all make, right, lead to all these new branches. So I wouldn't recommend it to somebody. If somebody asked for my opinion or if I was mentoring somebody, I would say, no, just go go to the restaurant. But I have no regrets for myself, right? Because if I didn't, there's a 99-point endless string of nine chance that I wouldn't be here right, right. now where I am, right? which is Strangely, in a pretty happy place. So I also started working in restaurants when I was a kid, but I kind of went off the kind of computer route because I had a bunch of experience in computers when I was younger. I was a big hobbyist, and I, I don't like to use the word hacker, but I delved research-wise into that research. angle. We'll Whatever. call it research with quotes. Research. That's better. Wise. But yeah. So anyways, I learned the customer service and the work ethic side from the restaurants because hardly anyone in any industry works as hard as people do in restaurants for the most part. If you, know? you have a child entering the workforce looking for a job and you want that child to really understand, respect, so we're talking about whatever the legal age is, 16, 17, right. 18, I guess depending on your state. I don't even know. I don't care if it's Wendy's or McDonald's or if it's Le Cirque in New York or Le Bernard, whatever, the best restaurant you can think of. Mm-hmm. Go and get any job, front of the house, back of the house, dishwasher, busboy, coat check, do not yep. care. There is a level of just demand. There's always work to be done. There's mm-hmm. never downtime. And in most of them from McDonald's to Le Cirque, there's systems. Right. Yep. There is a way to do it. Learn how to do it. If you think you know a better way, great. Once you've learned our way, then we'll listen to you. Right. Until you are great at your job, you cannot know that there's a better way. Right. Right. And from McDonald's to Le Cirque and everything in between. Yeah. And there's a lot of hustle, a lot of hard work. And yeah. You, just, and if humility. you're going slow in and a kitchen, humility, you're not working right? that very long. Teamwork. The customers can come down on you or be unhappy. Your bosses, your coworkers. There's just a level of humility that goes with it. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody should go into the restaurant business, but if you're just looking for a summer job or a part-time job, even Starbucks or right. Dutch Brothers, right? The same mentality. There's right. systems and you're busy and it's work. It's hard work, right? Not heavy lifting or deep computer science, but hard work. And I think early in a career that really instills something in people. Yeah. And there's also that, like, there's almost a level of work ethic that you get that I I think you also get it in some other industries too, but just because we're from the restaurant industry. I wouldn't know. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't know, but Um, I'm sure. So a good example is we often, which we need to do again sometime soon, but- we would go to the food bank. Usually once a quarter, we would have a group of us. We'd get a bunch of people together and we'd just go volunteer at the food bank. Whatever job they had, that's the job we're going to do, right? Mm -hmm. And there's people there from other companies that are volunteering. And like our group of 
half as many people would get four times as much work done. Well, because they're standing there and they're taking they're pictures. They're standing and taking and pictures and chit-chatting and whatever, and we're like fucking shoveling corn like it. machine. <laughs> In restaurant mode. Like, yeah. Yeah, we're just like, yeah. we're bagging and tagging Had, and weighing and, and getting stuff done, right? And it's another thing yeah. in the restaurant industry, right? You don't really have a choice. There's no chit-chatting while you're like, you can every once in a while, of course, yeah. exchange words, but it's put your head down and do your job. It's just, there's mm-hmm. something to do. So put your head down right. and do it. And that's again, in the workplace, that's a, something I think a lot of, at least the younger generation or more is lacking in that works work. It's not supposed to be easy. Yeah. Right. No. right? It's not, a, you suppose you can hopefully find something you love. Right. But it's, especially if you love it, it's not easy. Right. Even people, you love them. Yeah. They're not, they're not easy. A lot of industries, too, you see people who complain about, like, they're like, oh, my God, I had to work six hours. And somebody else is like, yeah, well, I had to work eight. And I'm like, I would love to work (laughs) eight more hours. Like, I want to work more. Like, people don't want to work. I I guess if you hate your job. There's a balance. No, listen, I love my job, but but I love the other things in my life, too, right? So I just hired an employee at the store. And, you know, it's really important to me. And obviously I have to be able to afford to pay this person, but it's really important to me to set them up for a high quality of life, right? right. I don't want a 60-hour employee because that 60-hour employee, you have to spend X amount of time decompressing and de-stressing. So now that 60 becomes 70 and it's just, you have a wife, a child, a significant other, a hobby, a passion that you should really be able to go out and pursue outside of your job. So I also try to live it by example. So I work a lot. I'm always on my phone. I'm always on email, but I make sure to set aside downtime and right. take my vacations and spend time with you know people that are important. Yeah, I took a vacation last year. Nice. Last year. <laughs> I, I, one coming. For, I was like, nice. And I'm like, wait, did he, he said last year. Well, I mean, that was the first vacation I took in, I don't even know, four years probably. So that was it, more than just a weekend kind of thing, right? So for me, love your yeah. job or not. And when I go on vacation, I work. But I try to limit it, right? Because I will go mental if I don't do at least some work. Uh, I like to have that two, three hours in the morning, get up, do a little bit of work, read some email, do whatever I got to do, right? Get stuff done. And then- Rest of the day, I set aside, go out with family, do whatever I got to do. But I like to have that little bit of of work time, even when I'm on vacation. I couldn't be off every day if I wanted to, right? There's certain, there's always going to be a handful of emails. Right. More or less every day that That's I have to That's different when you're answer. an employee versus like a business owner or something or a manager. For sure. Right? But for an employee, I want them to yeah, you want them shut to de- down. Connect. You turn off, you lock the door at the end of the day, it's done. Your job's over. The stress is beyond that. That's where, as a boss, that's where, you know, what we have to do. That's the burden. Right. So I never, obviously, there's emails and you take the phone calls that you need to take. But beyond that, yeah, I think it's really important to put time aside to just you know, pursue the other things without having work on your mind. And right. I think when you get back to work, you're a much better version of what you can be. So kind of to get back on track a little bit again, I know we- I can run it down run, real quick. But- So culinary school, went into the restaurant business, immediately stopped cooking. I didn't like, I didn't have the passion to be the best chef ever. And to do that is amazing set of dedication of time and skills and honing your craft. And it just didn't have that burning in me. So I went into management and started off as a beverage manager and then assistant general manager and general manager of a very large corporation running 250 to 400 seat restaurants in New York. So doing, got really used to systems and volume and moving of high dollars. And then I spent about 12, 
13 or more years between that group and another group. Uh, the other group was smaller, more fine-tuned, steakhouses, higher check average, things like that. So between those two groups, I spent most of my career, learned a ton, lost a ton of hair, worked the <laughs> terrible schedules, and then decided New York was not where I wanted to be. I was ready thinking about starting my own business and to do that in New York City is much more difficult than to do it in someplace like Oregon. So I packed up and moved out. Awesome. So and let's now, talk about chocolate bars. Well, yeah, I was going to say, because now you're running Days Meat and Nuts and you have the Study of Sweets. Mm-hmm. Is that your latest project? Do you it have something is. No, uh, Study Sweets is the latest and you know the two main projects are Days Meat and Nuts and Study Sweets. So about two years ago, Days Meat and Nuts needed a little more room. It had been running for about two years, rented a retail space in downtown Hillsborough, built a shipping production kitchen facility in the back 60% of my space. And in the front 40%, they built, designed a retail shop, started making chocolate, which from culinary school times was something I really enjoyed, a passion, just the making and the whimsy, the, you know, who doesn't love chocolate? Mm -hmm. If you're listening, I don't understand. (laughs) Um, So started doing that and fine tuned the idea originally was just truffles and caramels and bonbons and things like that. And then started doing some cool chocolate bar flavors, like solid chocolate bars. Because again, from the meat and nuts mentality, shelf stability is, you know, I love bakers, I love flake pastry goods, but I can't wrap my head around a business where you make something and if you don't sell it in 24 hours, it goes bad, right? right? Even in a restaurant, you wrap it up, you put it in the fridge, the steaks, Mm -hmm. you don't buy steak every day, you buy it once every few days or you age it or what, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, shelf stability is always important on how to scale a food business and how to grow a food business because if I don't have time to get it to a customer, to get it to a distributor, to et cetera. So chocolate bars, which are all shelf stable and have a really nice shelf life on them, start expanding, expanding, and now we're at about 200 different chocolate bars. A lot of vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free options, fun, funky flavors, so spicy bars and gummy bears and peanut butter and jelly and curry and creme brulee and matcha green tea, and I could probably name all 200. Wow. And there's a ton of challenges to the retail aspect. So Mm -hmm. the other business supports the finances behind that space. If it was just a chocolate shop, I'd be in really bad situation. So now the focus is on getting this online and shifting study of suites from being solely retail to being having a very similar model to the other business, focusing on direct to consumer, building your own beautiful custom gift boxes we're having designed. So you could build a four, eight, 12 piece box and just put whatever bars you want in it mm-hmm. or pick out a box that's already built. And then a handful of other things, focusing on things that are really fun, reasonable price point, but things you're not gonna find everywhere else. Sure, you could find chocolate bars somewhere else, but you can't find 200 chocolate bars of any combination you could think of. And then we're gonna be doing dipped pretzels with, we'll do like plain and sprinkles, but beyond that, like candied almonds, candied peanuts, candied hazelnuts and butter toffee, mm-hmm. and then some really high quality drip, dipped dried fruits, cherries, mango, How do you not peel. weigh 600 pounds? <laughs> so if the only calories I consume come from sugar, Okay. Then it sort of balances out, right? You eat a steak and your salads and your dressing. I only eat sugar. Perfect. Mix a little bit in beef jerky and nuts as a dessert, but yeah. That's good. Well, there you have it. Diet plan as per Dave. Sugar. Not a doctor. (laughs) Not a a doctor. Please don't do this. (laughs) This is not medical advice. (laughs) Do not eat nothing but sugar. So in talking and stuff like that, you're, you're figuring out ways to do things a little differently. Because if this was 10 years ago and you just had a sweet shop, 
all you would do is the retail in-person sales, maybe some farmer's markets here and there and stuff like that, but you wouldn't necessarily take it online. Um, there were places that were doing it at that point, but if you had the brick and mortar, you didn't try to bridge that gap necessarily. Or if you did, you, I completely agree. And maybe some people did them both, but there was never the priority or the focus was always one of the two, right? right. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is, and it's a grim picture and me and Matt have spoken about it a lot of times. There's exceptions to every rule and food and Alcohol are usually some of those exceptions and coffee, mm -hmm. but Main Street America in big air quotes is dying a slow death, but it's dying. Uh, landlords charge and I'm not judging them for it. An ever increasing rent roll. You know, a New York example is Union Square Cafe busy all the time. Restaurant had a couple hundred seats, I think always full lunch and dinner. No problem. Still could not afford their new rent. When their lease was up, they moved out of Union Square Cafe. That's just a crazy mentality wow. that you can have this environment, charge high prices, be busy all the time and still not be able to make it with your labor and all your other costs, your food costs, your beverage costs. Retail's just tough. You know, an employee, when it's all said and done here in Oregon, can cost you anywhere. I don't even know what minimum wage is, but you know, in my mind, I can't pay just from how I look at what I see the cost of living is. For me, I don't pay anybody, even when I hire temporary help, less than $15 an hour. And as an employer, that really costs you $16.50, $17 when you're in with all the taxes and mm -hmm. all that type of stuff. So one employee at that price is more than my rent. So even if your sales can continue to grow and grow, well, you have to add more infrastructure and you have to get a bigger space. So now you have a bigger rent roll and more employees and more insurance. So it's this never ending battle. But yet, if you have a closed facility in an online store, you hire a couple of people to knock out chocolate bars all day, one person to package them and fill the orders. And I can have a space, a fraction of the size, not retail where I don't have a high rent because you're foot traffic. Right. Yeah. So it's just... It's, I think it's the only way for a lot of businesses to survive and a lot of food businesses to survive. These small startups that you see at farmer's markets, you know, the person making jams or the person doing gourmet coffee or something like that. They're awesome. And I want to see those people succeed. Right. But how, where, what rent can you afford? How much coffee or how much jam or how many chocolate bars do I need to sell in a retail location to be able to pay for everything? Right. It's a lot. But to sell that online, you could do that in a day, in a week, in a month, whatever. Well, and if you go on, on online too, you can focus a little more on the automation and the AI. I say AI, but like your systems, getting those things in place. So we talk a lot about AI and automation on this show. So and hey, before we get into that a little bit, well, I want uh, to talk uh, slightly more about retail okay. for a second. So, and I want to Denied. get your opinion on this because I know Ooh. that you've you know kind of worked both coasts and in California and stuff. So I guess the talk in kind of like business podcasting circles and some of the groups we're in online and stuff is that they're calling it the retail apocalypse, which is talking about retail rental space, right? So like they have all these malls in the United States all over, especially in like the Midwest and like the Rust Belt and stuff mm -hmm. like that, where they're just abandoned, right? They yeah. can't rent them to anyone. There's... You know, lots of downtowns are trying to do revitalization projects and, you know, arts networks and culture, mm -hmm. you know, districts and stuff. But they've still got what I would consider high rent compared to just like you were saying, the the amount of rent per square fit, foot compared to the amount of revenue you can generate by that foot traffic is 
poor. Yeah, right? it's just it's a bad yeah. math problem. Yeah, for the person that's renting the space and starting the business. Right. It's a math problem that's stacked against you. And if you do well, in most cases, the landlord notices it and raises the rent. Right. So do you think that, I guess my question is, what do you think is going to happen with storefront retail in the United States? Do you think it's going to continue to get worse? Or do you think it's going to level off to a point where like landlords are going to have to say, look, I need to rent this space for cheaper. Nobody's going to rent it anymore kind of thing. Do you think that time is coming or do you think, you know, I mean, it's too. Uh, so like you don't what want the landlords whole, are going to do. Sorry, I was going to say, I mean, you don't want your whole city to end up being like self-storage and, you know, places that can afford that rent because they re-rent it. And not everybody can be a hair salon or whatever that can afford the per square footage or something, right? So The challenge is, you know, with any retail, and it's a problem from New York City, and it goes straight till downtown Hillsborough, and I've seen the same thing happens. So quickly to answer the first part of it, yes, I think it's an apocalypse. Yes, I think it's a downward decline that obviously there will be some level of a bottom, right? We all need to get a cup of coffee. We all need to eat on the go. We all need to get haircuts. We all need, I don't know, there's a hundred different concepts that will survive and be fine. That really can't be replaced in most ways. But even those, when they replace a little bit, right? Because I can go on an app right now and have a barber come to my house. And that's kind of, I shave my own head for all of us (laughs) listening. But if I was getting a haircut as a busy business owner, so I'm home instead of having to make an appointment and go out. Yeah, that's appealing to me. You can have a mechanic come to your house now. And it's beneficial for the mechanic because he doesn't need a shop. He just needs tools now and a license. So I do think even in the ones that survive, they're still going to lose market share to right. those mobile situations. And then other situations like Amazon's and Walmart right. online and things like that. From the landlord perspective, the flip side of why most people don't see it is because there's always a new entrepreneur. There's always the next Dave and Matt and Jeremy. Jeremy. I was not <laughs> going to get it. I'm sorry. I'm good with faces, bad with names. I'll remember your face for forever. Oh, I'll your name a hundred times. And Jeremy, you know, so when I leave my space, when my lease is up, somebody's going to look at it and be like, oh, well, it's a little expensive, but it's only 30% more than I wanted to pay. And if I hit it big, Right. That 30% doesn't mean anything. That's nothing. Mm-hmm. That's just another 400 bucks a month or whatever the number is, yeah. right? And then that person goes and they sign a lease and they ride their lease out or they go out of the business. And then two months later, it stays vacant for a month or right. two. The landlord writes it off on their taxes. And then some the next entrepreneur comes in and the next entrepreneur comes in. And you see this happening in New York City. So the landlords have no incentive. And most landlords in New York City and major cities and even in downtown Hillsborough, they own multiple properties. So the tax write-offs are real. So if it goes empty for a little while or a while, they'll figure it out. It balances out. And then there's always somebody willing to pay above market or slightly more than it really should be worth. And then the other things, right? Labor keeps going up, right. and that's a real problem. And that's where you're seeing automation. Like I said, one employee for me costs way more than my rent. Right. Right. And rent is a big expense. One employee, two employees. So labor, when you have a really high, busy company, labor is the one thing that costs a ton as well as is easy to manage. Oh, you're scheduled for an eight-hour shift. Go home four hours early. I just saved one employee 50% of their late, right? So it's this really big challenge, and that sort of segues somewhat, if that's where we're going, into the automation and, you know, how that really is paying a part in the killing of retail and downtowns across the country. 
And I think, you know, you have sort of a hybrid business, right? Because you have both retail and online sales, Mm -hmm. right? But your online sales is, and wholesale, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got multiple. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be the future of retail, right? Is where you can have the retail environment so somebody can walk in, where you can give them a good in-person experience. But then you also have the ability to have somewhere to do your production, take your photos, do video, you know, whatever that is, store your product, show it off, test Mm -hmm. stuff in person. You know, there's a lot of that in-person stuff, especially when it comes to getting immediate feedback that's great. But online automation, absolutely. I mean, you have to have automation, I would say, at least up to the point of, we like to call the point of handoff, which is we want to automate at least to the point where the business owner is taking over. So if that's your website, right, that's your, you know, if you're selling strictly online, Mm -hmm. you know, we still want to have your voice and your personality and all that things that are, that go into your website. But if it's a service-based business, like somebody's a plumber or they're electrician Mm -hmm. or whatever, they're a real estate agent, we want to automate up to the point where somebody should talk to them. And then we want them to actually talk to them, right? Because that's a difficult thing. Uh, What people usually do is they, automate the wrong piece. So they automate the conversation that they should have had with like a drip campaign or something. And I mean, I can get a drip campaign from every retailer on the planet at this point, right? But, and then automating your follow-up, automating your advertising systems, all of that automation saves you an immense amount of time that you can't do with a retail store, right? I mean, maybe you can automate some of the follow-up, but yeah, I mean, even no, I mean, from a retail perspective, outside from the sales, actual sales of interacting with the customer and packaging and all that thing, and you know, from when they walk into when they walk out, right. there's nothing. I mean, I'm sure I could put a you could put vending machines, you could put right. a touch screen kiosks, right? These things exist and they may Subway. be the future, but that's a you know business to business, model to model. But you can't, yeah. So it's, it's hard there's to a scale, space that listen. Right? So I, my goal is. I pay a chunk of rent for my retail space and I pay my mortgage at my house. So when my lease is up, I'm getting out of both of them and I'm going to buy and build my own facility. That's the hope at least, you know, for all the funds and I can get the right loans and the building construction loans and all that thing. So instead of paying retail, uh, the businesses will be paying towards a property that the business and myself own. The only scenario where I see myself going into retail was like there's a space in Portland, I forget where, like Washington and 13th or something like that. And it's a tiny little space, no bigger than this room that we're sitting in, this 10 by 15 room or something right. like that. And per square foot, the guy, the owner wants a ton, but monthly it's not a ton. And the only way I would consider it is if I could get some sort of like pre, like they have in Asia, you pay before you enter the space and then that unlocks the door and then you use the you ticket use the card that you paid yeah. for to put into a machine and it vends out what the product you paid for. So I don't need an employee. I don't, there's just the amount you have to sell of something to pay for just one employee. And as a business owner, my time's not well spent right. in retail talking to customers. I love it. It's great. And in a chocolate shop, it's the best. I have the best customers in the world. They're happy. Their kids smiling, you know, they're never mad. Nobody's ever upset because the steak is overcooked. It's chocolate. You ordered it. You know exactly what it is. It may not be your favorite, but if it wasn't, you probably wouldn't order it. But for time versus money and energy and effort, yeah, it's just, it's a huge challenge. Right. 
and enjoyable think, challenge. Yeah, and I'm lucky that is. I have the other business to support in the future of this business shifting online. So I'm not worried and I don't want it to come off like a complaint, right. but it's uh, when we talk about retail versus online and starting a new business and starting a new food business, which is really the only thing I know about, it's a big, big risk. It's yeah, a, it with, And it's time as well as money. Yeah, and with, because um, we have digital agency, right? But we still go see people in person, right? Like, I mean, you and I talk by email and mm-hmm. stuff, right? But like, I come and see you at your store, sure. right? And I mean, we do have some clients that are remote that, you know, we don't have the ability to go visit them in person. But I mean, we have an advantage over every other agency who is not going to get out from behind their desk and go see someone, right? And that's not a scalable advantage. I mean, I can only see so many people. Of course. But I can also hire more people, right? Like Jeremy goes and does networking and visits clients. And then now Paige is doing it too. And Mm -hmm. so we have more people to go do more things. So we can sort of scale that way. But we also don't have rent because we're remote, right? Right. So, but that's the trade-off. So you have more time or more luxury and freedom because you don't have a big rent in your work remotely. Right. And, and all my f- employees don't have to commute and waste time in their car. And, and it gives you a better work that. environment yeah. and they're happier to go out and do these extra mile and extra step things because the trade-off is I don't have to show up to work every day in a suit and tie at right. 8.30 a.m. to be there, you know. But the flip side is what you're doing is also super smart and I can't tell you some entrepreneur, I have no idea, you know, famous, not famous, but whatever, made a point and resonated with me of when you're growing a business and starting a business, do things that aren't scalable because you build that loyalty with those people you do it and that will pay dividends that will help you scale down the road. So problem with, you know, I get a local customer in Portland, it's like two years ago that had a problem with their order. Like I shipped them the wrong product. They ordered through my website to right. Portland and there was a problem with their website. So they emailed me, let's just say three o'clock in the afternoon, like, hey, you messed up my order. Oh, my bad. I take their word for it. I right. don't, you know, I have my systems, but I make mistakes. So I happened to be going to Portland. I had already planning on going to Portland. So I just packed up his order, text him, or not, I think I text him and emailed him. Right. 35 minutes later, it's in your mailbox. And then, it's a customer for life. And if right. nothing else, it's a memory for life. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, when he sees the ad for Dave's Meeting Lots, it's like, oh, Dave's, that's the guy that delivered my package two years ago. I got to place right. an order. or And it's just, you know, the value of the thing. And what it cost me, I was already going to Portland. It was five minutes right. out of my way. And I saved money on shipping. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Was, you know, so I saved six bucks. So you, it, it all washes out. But so those things that are unscalable, you know, I try to include a lot of like when we ship beef jerky, we put in little sample bags, full size sample bags sometimes of flavors that I think that customer would like from what they ordered, but that they didn't order. And a lot of people right. email me back saying, thank you so much, but I think it helps to have, it gives me a pretty positive return through repeat orders and increased orders. But I know, even though I don't hear about 80% of it, that makes an impression. Mm-hmm. And I can't do that if I was doing a thousand orders a day, right? It would just, the cost would eat it up. But while I'm still really focused on growing that aspect of that business, it's money well spent. It's, you know, it comes back to me and. And it's when you're doing it because you want to serve your customer better and not doing it so that 
you'll get a news story or a review or something, right? You're for doing sure. it just because you want, like, I'm sorry I screwed up. You know what? Yeah. I can do this for you to fix this problem. You're doing it because you want to fix the problem. You're not doing it because, well, I'm going to do this thing. We're going to bring the camera crew and show me putting it in the mailbox. And, you know, like it's not it's not necessarily a commercial intent. For right? sure. I mean, yeah, it benefits your business, of course. But it's right? just leave a great yeah, impression on one person. One person, wanna- leave a great impression. And that... If you believe in karma, then it's good, you know, in that it'll come back to you somehow. But it's just as a business owner, as somebody, as we said, born in the service industry, I know what that, like, what do you mean it's in my mailbox? I just emailed you. What are you talking about? Yeah, I just dropped it off. I live out in Hills, blah, blah, blah. And that's one customer that I've made a great impression on. And even outside of business, right? Making a great impression on somebody by doing something cool for somebody else for, usually hopefully a selfless reason that just feels good mm-hmm. yeah and it's never bad like if you go out and do something for something that helps somebody feel good get a good impression of you and good impression of your business yeah, great. if they don't tell anybody what's the worst that happened you made them happy and also right? in this case that we're talking about i made the mistake i messed up his order right? right so the difference of you know shipping it or dropping it off let me do something quick and cool that's five minutes out of my way or whatever right. it is right so much less than driving the guy who left his credit card in study of suites. Oh no. He left his credit card and it was a credit card he booked a concert with, with oh. Will Cole tickets in Seattle. <laughs> and he had to use the card. And it was the only he had to use the It's the only way you pick him up. Yeah. So I drove his credit card to him. To Seattle? To Seattle. Wow. Uh, I was he- on a weekend. <laughs> uh, that no, one, yeah. So that's not scalable. That's not <laughs> scalable. <laughs> if that I happened left, again the next weekend, it wouldn't happen. But is yeah, three-hour drive now to yeah. Seattle. Yeah. I left yeah. some tickets that need to be paid for at Will Call. If you could go ahead and just take your credit card over there and get those <laughs> for me, that'd be great. I used your credit card. Yeah, yeah. that was a good one. It was yeah. like maybe two months after I opened the store. The wow, store. That's great. And then I put up a big sign saying, "Don't forget your credit card." <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. Only happened. You know what else once. I like that's at your store that I really liked is you have a tip jar, but it's tips for charity. Mm-hmm. So people can tip you, and then you donate the tips. Yep, I donate the tips. I donate much more of the tips. To, again, the store is not super busy, so right. tips don't generate too much. But I always match them every month or every couple of weeks whenever I decide to get motivated to count it all up. And I tally right. it as we pull it out of the jar. Yeah, you know, we give a bunch to St. Jude Children's Hospital. They do a big, like, streaming promotion with Twitch right. Play, I think Let's Play. Um, so mm-hmm. streamers from around the world are running promotions for a month, and all the proceeds, all the donations go to St. Jude. So right. one of my customers is a local streamer, right. Fairwings. Yeah, she her, makes yeah. jewelry super cool. She makes jewelry. She streams it on Twitch. So, again, using, you know, this technology to build a small business. And yeah, so we just donated all through her. So it helps her, you know, the people, inspires her followers on there on right. another platform. That's good and collaboration. The, yeah, absolutely. And then all the money goes directly to St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Yeah. Right. And so next month we'll do something else. And then when we launch Study of Suites, we're going to have to figure out what the real numbers are. I don't want to say it's 10% of profits or anything. We're going to find a reasonable amount that makes sense for everybody that I can, you know, live with in growing a business. Right. We're going to go out of our way to donate a portion of all the profits to things that are important to the chocolate. So some to sustainability of the trees, which environmental, you know, conditions are causing a lot of mm-hmm. fluctuations there. And then more importantly to the fair working trade of cocoa farmers. So right. there's a long, really ugly history with cocoa farming. So we only deal with fair trade certified stuff and try to go with stuff that we can even go further traceability on where right. the farm that the cocoa beans actually came from. That all comes with a cost. So, you know, it's finding 
finding the balance of great chocolate, but making sure that it's, you know, really ethically sourced. So when are you planning on launching the online study of sweets? So, you know, I do things really strangely, not smart. Study Suites is on there right now. You can go look, but the website's not in any shape. So the framework of the website's up there. It has probably some basic store information, but not ready for orders yet. Over the next 30 days, we're photographing all the chocolate bars. I just brought in a photographer, another local person, and photographing all the chocolate bars. And then we'll be launching another Kickstarter campaign. Mm-hmm. So to help fund, to do custom gift boxes, need to set up all the design work, the plate work. I have the design set up, but to set the plates and then you have to order a pallet of boxes, right. which is 2,500 boxes or something crazy On top like of that. The, the molds for that. Um, and expensive. then to also execute this online with any, you know, once we have some experience with how busy we'll be from the other business and through Facebook marketing, working with Hook, I have to be set up for business. So I'm going to need some more equipment and then also chocolate needs to be temperature controlled. Mm-hmm. So to get the boxes produced and to help mitigate some of the risk of starting this and really putting a considerable amount of money into growing it online, we're going to go back to Kickstarter because I believe in crowdfunding and we talked obviously a little right. bit about it already. And so that we're looking at, we're in July now, Yep. first or second week of August, somewhere around there, we'll launch the Kickstarter that'll run for 42 days. And then after that, the website will go live once I start fulfilling the orders for the Kickstarter. So a couple the- of weeks after that the website will go live. Okay. So the goal is to, by the time the weather's cooled across the country, to start shipping. And then by the time the weather heats back up, I'll have perfected the refrigerated shipping containers and the ice packs and all that. Mm-hmm. So once the summer's over, we really roll in. And then next summer and when it gets warmer, we'll be able to ship nationwide year round. Oh, nice. Okay. And so by the time this episode airs from the time that we're talking right now fair enough then the kickstarter will be launched or at least close very to launching very close to it or launching right. today i don't know so, i have no idea yeah and then launching you'll be today. able to go to studyofsweets.com and see the finished website because you're working on it now but by the time we launch the correct. podcast it's already going to be done absolutely so Correct. So, so pretend it's the future. The website will be there so you'll be able to actually look and read about all the ingredients right. and all the flavors so i don't have to put tons and tons of data onto the Kickstarter and make it really visually appealing and a clean, sharp, simple message on the Kickstarter campaign. You'll be able to back in, get in some of the early incentives. So it'll be a slight financial incentive to back the Kickstarter, save a couple of whatever it is, 50 cents a bar or something like that. And also be involved in helping create some of the new seasonal flavors, which is going to be something for the Kickstarter backers. And then the website will be up. And then once I fulfill the Kickstarter rewards, We'll be rocking and rolling. So a couple of weeks later from air quotes now. And I've tried them (laughs) and they're fucking good. (laughs) Quarter for the swear jar. Actually, that's twice this time. Yeah. I've had to start mark that box when I upload the podcast. Explicit. Explicit. And I'm just like, yes, sorry. (laughs) I couldn't help it. All right. So there's two websites. There's two things going on right now. There's Dave's Meat and Nuts. And there's that just .com. Davesmeatnuts.com, yeah. And then uh, the one that's coming up is studyofsweets.com. You got it. And are those the best way to get a hold of you? To For sure. There's phone numbers, emails, and yeah. Uh, Dave at Dave's Meat and Nuts for anybody that needs me. I reply pretty quickly, except for when I'm recording podcasts. So okay. you cover all of the gamut, right? You cover sweet, savory, and um, salty. So Yeah, and you know, I do other projects as well. So, you know, my 
strong suit is recipes and efficiencies on packaging. So I have another customer that I do a large jar of like a sea salt blend. So it's sea salt and Whoa. some other ingredients that's under their brand and their label. I just mm-hmm. make it for them and send it to them and they sell it where and how they sell it. And so that's other things I'm doing and I do private label stuff as well. So there's always study suites is really filling a big void of what I think I can really contribute to food and online. I think there's a really unique hole that I'm going to be filling, Mm -hmm. but then I'm always, you know, working on other product developments and flavor developments and looking for the next thing. That's awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. I am super excited to um, get some of your nuts and your meat and of course the chocolate because I'm a fat kid and fat kids love chocolate. But I'm excited to see where this goes and thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, guys. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt Rouse and Jeremy Marcon. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Now stay tuned for a preview of our next episode of Digital Marketing Masters. Join us next time as we talk about how to be better than fine. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you. Are you ready to stop grinding and start making an impact? Are you tired of working long hours and not growing your business? Get Matt's new book, Flattening the Hamster Wheel, on Amazon now. Just go to hook2.us slash hamster. That's H-O-O-K-T-O dot U-S forward slash H-A-M-S-T-E-R.